I know, right? It's tomorrow. Like you're in the future, right? Like oh, it's true. Yeah. I am, in, I am in the future. I'm in your future. I'm literally in yes. your future. Um, it's so, what uh, eleven a.m. It is nine a.m. Nine a.m. Day. Okay. Well, math is hard. Okay. Time is hard. <laughs> well, math is hard. Says the engineer. <laughs> Lovely. Um, I trust you, you know with what? everything, when, Jonathan. When we were in New Zealand, it was easy because I could just subtract four hours, and that was it. Right. Sure. Granted, it was the next day. But it was just, you know, subtract four hours. There was no, like, add 18 or some weird thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So Australia versus U.S. is, is always tricky. <laughs> yeah, it, it's slightly insane. But, but luckily, it's cool at the same time. Um, How is the future, you- by the way? <laughs> uh, it's marvelous. Uh, look, see, look. It's, I, you, oh, I'll show you up my window if you can see up my window. Uh, oh, oh, that's good. Nice. still it's, coming up. Anyway, it's nice. sunny. It's a Perfect. webcam, so the quality is crap. But uh, <laughs> nice, nice, nice. It is a beautiful sunny day. It is, of course, winter here because I'm in the southern hemisphere. And, okay. Um, but winter in Australia is mostly glorious. Uh, there's there's not a lot of rain. You, in fact, well, I'm in Sydney, so Sydney is great from the weather perspective because it rains and then it stops and then it's beautiful. So it might rain for a while, so maybe just a couple of hours, but then it's done and then it's all over and we go back to blue skies and sunshine. So it's pr- probably um, uh, 18 degrees, 17, 18 degrees or something like that. It's centigrade if that, I don't know what that converts into Fahrenheit. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool, but it's, it's not, not cold. Yeah. And I wish that was my winter. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> so our, our winters are, uh, are, for the most part, pretty glorious. Summers can be stiflingly hot. Um, so we have some bad summers. And of course, you would have you heard about our fires, you know, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. last year, which were pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah, and we I had feel some like very, I previously lived in Australia then because so I just moved to uh, Boston in the U.S. and I three weeks ago lived in Florida. So um, our winters were roughly like eh, we we would get down into the fifties for like three days out of the year, um, and then summers are just miserable, so humid, so hot. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I totally Humidity understand what that's you. like. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> now yeah. I just get like apparently snow and cold so i've never experienced that before so that's gonna be a a fun situation so so whereabouts are you guys so we're well well, i'm in boston massachusetts and then jonathan's in seattle yes we had our first 90 degree day here for the summer probably the only it was 95 97 oh wow whatever that is that was like the peak peak was it (laughs) I, I sure hope so, because here in the Pacific Northwest, because our summers are generally a bit more milder than that, maybe 75 to 80, whatever that is in, in Celsius uh, equivalent, uh, not many homes have air conditioning, or if they right. do, it's, it's kind of weak, right? So when it does get stifling hot and the yeah, humidity starts suffers. creeping in, right, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable, to say the least. So hopefully we don't have any more of those. I'm not confident. I mean, <laughs> it was. You're a very it, pessimistic person, Jonathan. I know. Oh, I'm sorry, I try to be a realist, realist as much as yeah, I can. Okay, that's so what sorry. I. That's how I bill it. That's what myself feel better. Call. Yeah. <laughs> call himself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Andrew, let, let's kind of jump into it. Give us. I'm, I'm real one really excited to dive into this topic because I, I really geek out with with logistics, with warehouse, um, especially like. 
where warehousing is going from like a robotics kind of standpoint, like logistics is very interesting to me, but give us um, a bit of a backstory on yourself and kind of what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah. So I, I started out, so I'm, I'm old, right? So I've been around for a while. So uh, I started out in, uh, in manufacturing. I did a science degree. So I went through uni and did a science degree and didn't want to be a scientist at the end of that and wanted to do something in the business realm and uh, started off in a footwear manufacturer in Australia. This is back in the uh, middle 80s. So at that time, manufacturing was being outsourced. This was the whole big outsourcing push where manufacturing was going offshore. Uh, and man- and footwear manufacturing is was really like the bottom end of, of industry. But what I discovered was that I really loved manufacturing, and I thought I'd love to be a manufacturing manager, and I discovered uh, operations management. Um, which was definitely that combination of of the sciencey sort of you know background um, that I had. Plus, uh, I love people, so you know that combination of putting systems and processes and uh, you know technical things together and making that work in a human context. I just found that fascinating and was really taken by that. But I had to change industries and I had to get out of manufacturing because clearly there wasn't a future there. So I switched into working for Baxter Healthcare, who were a a pharmaceutical medical distributor, Um, big American company, global company. You may be probably familiar with them. Um, And they dominated the IV fluid market in Australia. And I went to work for them in their warehouse and, and started to learn about warehousing. So that was really where I cut my teeth and I worked for... Uh, for them for 11 years and that was really my foundation experience and went through a number of um, iterations of warehouse management system implementation through with that business um, from you know a, a failed completely failed attempt where we bought a package that basically didn't work and never <laughs> never got implemented to in-house developed uh, software and then finally culminating in JD Edwards where uh, Baxter went globally uh, towards JD Edwards software and well implemented the JD Edwards events uh, warehouse management system and so all that just really honed my skills around the implementation of systems and process design. Um, but I didn't want to be a complete tech geek, you know, application consultant. I didn't want to be that. I wanted to be an operational manager. So I liked the system side, but I really wanted to be an operational manager. So uh, I moved from there to logistics manager with a business called Clifford Hallam, which again was selling pharmaceuticals into the, the hospital and healthcare industry. And uh, so I did that for a number of years. That business got merged and I got uh, booted out of the corporate world through as a casualty of the uh, the takeover, as so often happens, and that was that was actually the second time my career being crashed, uh, trashed by a corporate takeover. So I was kind of a bit over the whole corporate world by then, and um, so I went to work for a consulting business called Logistics Bureau, and I discovered two things: one. After initially, it took me a bit of a while to get over that that whole you know losing your job because it was a job that I I really liked. And when you get when you get punted from a job that you really like, and you realise that that is just not in your control, it it completely changed my attitude towards work and towards working in the in the corporate world. So I really did not want to go back and repeat that experience and have my destiny in the hands of of. Uh, stupid people, right? That's all, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it because they completely <laughs> they trash that business. Uh, 
you know, it's, Oh, I love it. <laughs> well, the whole yeah, intention. I get it though. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. And, you know, having that done, not just once, but twice, you, you, you kind of run the gambit and you start to see somewhat of a pattern of like, okay, maybe the people at the helm are not the people who should be at the helm. And yeah. yeah. I've just realized I've I've potentially slandered some people in a podcast here, but I haven't mentioned (laughs) any names. Yeah, that's how podcasts (laughs) work. I said exactly who I think is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's important. It's got to be anonymous, right? Um, Yeah, no, no, I totally get it though. And you know, so okay, so you go through, you get, you get a bit jaded, which is totally understandable, and you go through a bunch of different experiences, and you, you go through different positions and roles. And you find what really makes sense to you. And you made a point that I really want to highlight because I've seen this personally now, um, which is that it's it's very hard to take a generalized system and throw it into a new company. Like like ERP is like a perfect example where there's all these ERP systems, but they're so difficult to actually implement when when it gets down to it, right? And so, you know, um, Network Prep, which is which is a Amazon Prep company out of Oregon that I have. You know, we we kind of built their system from scratch from day one using like off the shelf tools, and there there are things that exist that we could have used, but it just requires so many so many assumptions, and it, it requires you to operate in the way that they assume you would, and that's not necessarily correct, right? If you're following like a lean manufacturing, um, like a, like a TPS style um, methodology, there it, it can be really difficult to say this is the way every warehouse or logistics operation should function when realistically it's going to be different from from you know place to place and and that's kind of by design to a certain degree yeah 100% correct so there's a there's a few things that are probably worth talking about because just on that that realm because let's talk about the Baxter healthcare experience now this is in Australia so Baxter had spent many years developing their own systems and they were very good right they had really strong internal IT uh, and they were very good because they were specifically designed for the purpose, right? So then you bring in uh, JD Edwards, and it, honestly, it wouldn't have mattered what it was, but basically you bring in a generic ERP system. And there's nothing wrong with JD Edwards. It's, it's, a, it's a good package. Um, and that, mind you, this is a long time ago, so I don't know what – I don't even know what that looks like, what JDE would look like now. But the point is you bring in a generic ERP – and it's all about the way that the system is implemented. So the initial view, and this was a two-and-a-half-year implementation because we spent 18 months failing to implement vanilla J.D. Edwards, right? We put it in, but we just kept going, oh, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. It just, you know, there's, there's this issue, is that it? Well, you know, so what are we going to do? So 18 months, we were kind of getting ready to go live, and they pulled the pin, and they said, no, this is... This is, there are too many compromises here in trying to do the unmodified system. So they, they just let the internal IT people loose on the JDE code and they just modified the hell out of it, right, to make it do what they wanted it to do. So I don't know what the point of that was because you may as well have stayed with the existing system. And in fact, every, so this was, if you, you know, you guys, are you, I, I, don't, I don't know how old you are, but. Y2K was a thing, right? Back in Right, yeah. Right? Why, I, in, I, I in, vaguely in, remember. All right. <laughs> You're probably very young at the time. So everyone thought yeah. the world was going to end in, in Y2 in the year 2000 because of this you know, the two digit year versus the four digit year that was just encoded into the uh, uh, so that the managed the way they were going to manage in the centuries and the, everyone thought the world was going to end. Anyway, it didn't. 
um, and probably never was going to. Anyway, so the point is, we we one of the objectives was we we're going to put in this system to overcome the Y2K issue and to manage the introduction of GST, goods and services tax, in Australia at that time. Well, we missed both of those hurdles and then modified the old software because we weren't ready to go live because we completely missed the go-live date, which was supposed to be pre-year 2000, in 1999. And so all of the reasons for doing it were null and void, and they modified the software. So huge, huge. We take a massive team of people out of the business for two and a half years to implement the ERP, but we weren't going to risk the business. And when we went live, it was fine, right? Not without the usual go-live stress, but it worked. Um, but only because we customise it to suit the particular application. So your point there about trying to put in a generic system, uh, and and typically, you know, you made the point. I think it's very very valid. They all these systems are written with something in mind, with a particular way of doing business in mind. And so if you don't do business that way, then they may not suit you. So it's very much a horses for courses uh, scenario with with software. Or you need a very clear understanding of what your business processes are or should be, and that's those are two different things. Um, and then you go and seek ways within the software to make it work to suit your particular business process, and that's something we can probably come back to a bit later. Uh, so, yes, the whole ERP upgrade and there was a lot of rollouts of SAP and JDE around about that time and it's just continued going on and and I saw you know this would stop businesses in, in their tracks but because people would would put in SAP and it's like the world would end because no one knew how to use it properly implementation of a of a major ERP in a big complex business is such a massive undertaking and, and a lot of people don't do it terribly well or even if you do it well, it still is difficult to recover from, you know, because it, it just, everything changes for, for, for everyone in the business. Um, yeah, so it's so it's a big deal. Yeah. Okay, that's my little ERP rant. <laughs> no, no, that's good. I like it. It's funny because, um, you know, so I, I've, I've not had like a pers- personal example with like, you know, fiddling with ERPs, but, um, you know, I've taken enough information systems classes to understand like just how terrible they, they truly are. It's a great idea. It's a beautiful idea. Um, but the, the application of it, the reality of it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. It seems to be a classic buy versus build situation. Um, and it is hard. It is hard to build something custom with such a large operation. Um, but it seems like it would just make a ton of sense here. Um, sorry, my lights just went out. Thanks, motion de- detectors. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's later in the office. <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century, yep. Yeah, I know, right? Thanks, automation. Yes, the lights are smarter than you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, it, you know, but and it's a tough call, right? Because, you know, it, it's not always buy, it's not always build. It truly just depends on the situation um, at hand. And, and I think it's worth... If you're in that situation or considering it, it's worth thinking a bit longer. It's worth taking a little bit longer to figure out, like, is is onboarding an already existing system the best play here? Or is it, let's go ahead and build something based off the way we work? And I, I, I view software, and Jonathan can correct me because he's actually an engineer. 
I view software as being reactive to how people work, right? Software should not always force you to work a certain way unless unless it's got built-in best practices, right? And, yeah. and most of the time, those yeah. assumptions are just mean? wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what is that, right? Because Because the best practice here versus there is different, right? And so you make too many assumptions, and I'm just not a fan of saying, well, this is the way it's done here. Okay, but that doesn't mean we can't do it better, right? And you always want to kind of have that methodology there, I, I, I would imagine. Well, the, one of the other problems you've got with a lot of uh, software implementation is that both the customer and the implementer are completely clueless. They, they actually don't know what they're doing. Um, and that's a bit harsh, <laughs> but this is what happens, right? So the guys from SAP or Big Software Incorporated come and sit down with the managers of the business and they go, right, how do you, how do you, how do you run your business, right? And they, go, and, they, and they sit down and they do a little process workshop and they go, all right, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll come back and then we'll do a gap analysis. And they come back and they go, oh, well, we can't do that and we can't do that and we can't do that, but we can do all this other stuff. And so you can, you know, we've got workarounds, workarounds, right? That's a, that's the phrase, right? We've got workarounds. So it's now 10 steps instead of five, but don't worry, it's fine. You can still do it. Uh, and, of course, they don't think about the fact that now the the admin person or whoever is now doing twice the amount of steps that they used to do to perform the same function that they did in the old software. And so, so two things happen. One, your system is now worse. Two, you've made no improvements to the business because um, the, the implementers, the, the applicant, they don't know. They don't know how your business should run. And people in business frequently have poor processes frequently uh and the um uh, i know this is from big business right down to to small business so so everyone is clueless about what the process the underlying processes of the business should actually be so no one addresses it from the fundamental process level to 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 implement a good system you can get a bad system and implement it well and in fact i am Doing that right now with with a with a client, we're uh, we've we've gone back to the you know we've assessed the problematic processes within the business and why things don't work for them, but their system that they have at the moment is really it, it's a it's a very basic accounting package. This is just a, a it's a retail business. This is not a big business. This is a um uh, a successful retail business with a couple of stores and some online uh, um, sales and. Uh, but they just have workflow issues and they have visibility of work issues, right? And their system is so simple. And so no one's really – an accountant implemented it, right? And and that's the other thing. ERPs are accounting packages. More First and foremost, before they are operational management um, uh, systems. So they're designed to keep accountants happy and track the flow of dollars. The fact that they may also do a bit of inventory and a bit of warehouse-related sort of stuff is almost incidental. So um, because of that, then the, the accountants, do, do they drive the process, right? And, that, and, and they just do it to suit themselves. And the operational people, you know, they just get delivered, oh, well, this is not how now what you have to do. Um, so... So what happened in this particular case in with this uh, with this client? They um, they have a like a small business accounting package, and what I've done is I've sat down with them and gone, okay, there's a real lack of clarity in the handover from 
uh, along the chain of your process because it's a little bit complex because of uh, the nature of the business. It's not like people coming in, transacting and, you know, walking out with a product. They have to order stuff in. It's got to be customised. So it's in the uh, the building renovation business. So the people got to come in and they go, I want, you know, this in that colour and that size. And so there's some complexity to it. So there's a lot of special order stuff that has to be managed and ordered in to deliver the result to the to the client. So they uh, trying to do that in a small business package proved to be that's been implemented by an accountant means that they really no attention was paid to the order management workflow. So there was they, there was all sorts of things that were critical to their business that they couldn't report on um, or couldn't clearly understand. Answering the simple question and almost all ERPs struggle to answer this very simple question. What can I ship now? Who, who, who's first in the priority queue? How does that match up, match up with my inventory? And what can I ship? Whose order is ready in full, ready to be shipped? It's a, it's a very, very simple question. So many, so many systems simply make that answering that question very difficult, um, or don't really, don't really answer. Yeah, they don't answer it very well, and there's a, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, so that was that was the sort of thing that the sort of basic operational issues like you know what what do I need to buy to satisfy the demand that I have from all these orders? Unclear, right? It's in there somewhere. So they had people literally going in, opening up individual orders, looking at items on the order, and go, no, we don't have any stock of that. I'll, I'll need to get that in order by order, line by line. It's madness, complete madness. So and it's like it's just time consuming, and so no wonder when you throw a bit of volume at that at, at that process, they can't get the work out the door, right? So the customers end up waiting longer than they're expecting for their goods, uh, and um, it, it, the business suffers as a result of that, right? And the reputation suffers. So uh, logistics is absolutely a critical function to the success of of any business. And now I know we're talking e-commerce, can talk e-commerce, but uh, and e-commerce is simple compared to a lot of the complexity of a lot of other businesses. You you come, people pay you money, and you've got it in stock, or you've ordered in, and then you ship it. Like it, it's actually very simple. But then, in any given business, you dive down into the detail, and you will discover that there's all sorts of complexity that keeps being piled onto that. Right? You know, you, now you've got multiple multiple channels and multiple websites. You've got eBay. You've got I don't know whether Craig's. I know Craigslist is the thing, but I don't know if people use that as a channel for e-commerce. Is that is that the sort of thing? Not that, as much now. No, not if it's legitimate. No, yeah. right. Okay, <laughs> but eBay is a big e-commerce channel in in Australia. Of course, um, yeah. Uh, 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 Amazon growing. So the whole and it's not just Amazon; it's other marketplaces. So there's now everyone who's a big retailer wants to have a marketplace, right? I'm sure this is happening with Walmart and with you know everyone wants to be a marketplace in Australia. We've got. Um, Maya, which was a struggling department store, is now has a thriving e-commerce marketplace. Boom! Oh, they woke up finally. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, Walmart, sleeping giant, waking up in the US, as I understand it now, on the e-commerce. So, Amazon, watch out because Walmart is physically everywhere, right? In a way that Amazon is not. So, if Walmart ever got their act together, they should. I, I don't know why they wouldn't stomp all over Amazon. Really, you know, they're really good at supply chain. They got shop. They got you know locations everywhere. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, so, but now you've got to manage inventory. If you're an e-commerce and you're selling through all these different marketplaces, you, you might you've got to make stock available on all of these 
websites and you want it to be reasonably accurate. So how do you how do you make sure that you update and keep everything updated when you've got a sale on and everyone's after that product? You've got ten left and all of a sudden hundred people hit enter all at once. <laughs> Trying to take the last 10 from multiple different channels and, uh, you know, 90 people are going to be disappointed. So e-commerce certainly can get complicated once you start adding multiple websites and multiple channels into it. But but it, it, it will all come back to how you manage the systems to support that and then how you manage the distribution and the fulfillment of, uh, of those products out to the customer. And I think I can give a, a pretty good real life example uh, of one of those scenarios um, here on the, on the show in past episodes. We've talked about my hopefully successful uh, coffee business right and you know when you're when you're packaging and selling coffee one of the biggest things obviously you need is an adequate quantity of supplies right bags and ties and labels and things like that and one of the questions i haven't been able to answer yet and i'm hoping i'll answer soon before it becomes a problem cross my fingers hopefully um is making sure i order enough supplies but i'm also not ordering too much but i'm also not ordering not enough, right? Like once once orders start coming in, once you start seeing some kind of flow, some kind of regularity, right? I'm going to have to start deciding what intervals am I going to start ordering these things in, right? Because because I'm partnering with a roaster who's doing all of the hard work, they don't have a ton of extra space for me to just stash all of my crap for an indefinite period of time, right? So I want to give them enough so they can fulfill all the orders in a timely fashion and get everything out. But I also don't want them complaining because there's a pallet and a half of bags that are going to last six years, right? You know what I mean? Indeed, that's right. Uh, and that, and there you've absolutely nailed the classic problem of all inventory management, which is you've either got too much or too little. Right? <laughs> and that's exactly what I'm afraid of. Like, I know I could purchase a quantity now and be set for a period of time, right? Like, I, I can make an initial purchase of however many cases or whatever, like, whatever the unit is, I can just buy some and not think about it for a while. But it's going to be something I'm going to have to think about again and again. And I, ideally, maybe not again after that, because there's going to be something that's going to help me, you know, make that decision for me. And ideally, um, you know, especially like if I let Dylan loose on it, right, it'll just order it for me and just never tell me it happened. Hey. And I don't have to think about it at all. <laughs> yes, right. Cause I think exactly. that's, that's like the, the ultimate end goal, right? You you're notified or not even that your, you know, your supplies are running below a certain quantity because you've had X number of orders in a period of time, you know, what supplies go into each order sends off an email to your supplier and with a PO and everything and the supplier just ships the stuff, right? And then the invoice comes, you just pay the bill. And like, that's the only interaction you have, right? You don't have to think about anything else. I long for that day. Maybe Dylan can <laughs> help me work that out one of these days. But like, that's to me, it, it's, it, it seems like such like a simple, a simple problem, but I know if I'm, if I'm out of supplies, I, there's no, there's no revenue, right? Like I can't just send people a Ziploc of coffee beans. I mean, I could, exactly. I could technically, I could, but not a good like, brand. Come on. Like, no, you, you basically your brand. can't, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. No, right. Like the, the FDA says it's probably fine, but <laughs> you probably you really the FDA doesn't really add up to much. So <laughs> I wouldn't take that, but, but, but Jonathan, you're correct, right? Like, and I'm glad we're shifting gears to this because we were just talking about this in the office the other day, is forecasting is not an easy thing. It should be. 
but there's one, there's multiple equations for, for, for forecasting. You can get as simplistic as you want. You can have a Kanban visual card, like Poke Okay, if you're following like TPS, that says, okay, whenever I get down to, let's say, 10 units of this thing, I know based on current you know, sales volume that that's going to last me long enough to like place in a restock order and get it back in and refill. Plus like a little bit of a buffer, maybe like you can go that simple, but then yeah, Jonathan, you can also go to, you know, we're going to have like a full like software that's going to manage all that for us. And, and Andrew, I'm curious to see how you approach it. Cause I know how I would approach it and that's probably wrong. So <laughs> I would love to get your opinion as to how you would approach, you know, for a new brand, for a new operation, how do you look at forecasting? Most most people do inventory very badly, like they do all sorts of things very badly in the logistics world. And and the, and look, when I say I might sound critical, but essentially what I'm saying is most people don't know how to do this stuff, right? Simply because they've had no exposure to it. There's a lot of really really smart people uh, out there in in business, right? So it's not that people aren't smart; it's just that they don't know. Um, I've just done a uh, uh, an analysis for a, a pretty decent-sized business, um, and 40% of their inventory uh, by value hasn't moved in the last 12 months. Wow. Okay. Oof. That's the yeah. first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. This is a successful business. It's very profitable. They've got smart people using uh, a modern ERP to to manage their their inventory, and um, you know they told me they told me they I, I asked them when I was sort of doing the the review. You know, I asked them about how much inventory they had that was slow moving or, or, or dead stock. I said, Do you have a feel for how much that is? And they said, Oh, we've got about this much. And and but by my calculations, it was five times that amount. Right, so that's the stuff that hadn't moved. That's before we even get to the stuff that's just kind of dead because they've only sold one in the last twelve months. Right, so there is there are two things about forecasting. You can forecast from history if you expect the future to be uh, predictable based on the past. So, but but that is also the classic driving looking in the rearview mirror. Right, uh, if there's a curve up ahead and the road behind you is straight, you are going to crash. <laughs> and people do, right, on a regular basis. Then there is forecasting from the future. Now, nobody knows the future, right? <laughs> so um, but what, but so if you have something that is in that you just go, well, the, I know the past has no relation to it. But as I've said to many clients, okay, you might not know what's going to happen, but you don't know nothing. So use what you know. Is it, is it similar to another product? Uh, are you running promotions? How much do you expect to sell on that promotion? I mean, people buy stuff. Every time you buy something, you're making a forecast, right? And people like, oh, it's like, get their head around that concept. But if you make a decision to buy something, you're, you're going, like, if I go to the shops and get some milk, I buy however many litres of milk that I, I want to buy based on the fact that I know that, you know, the expiry date for milk is about a, a week to 10 days um, and I use about half a litre a day or a litre a day or whatever it is. And so I, I just do that completely subconsciously and just go out and buy something. But essentially the, in, the, 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 the fact that I've bought it means that I've made a forecast on how much it's going to use. 
But people do this with stock with very long lead times because they're buying from organizing from factories and uh, and very quickly the scenario about what's going to happen in the future is just uncalculable, right? It's just you just you can't mentally do that in your head in the way that you can when you just go and buy milk and you know that if you get it wrong, you just pop out and get some more, right? When you've got three or four months supply lead time from your manufacturer, you you can't do that. People take they the number of times I've had conversations with people who calculate based on gut feel is extraordinary, right? But this is old. The arithmetic for this is old and it's widely available and and published. So there are no secrets here. You can do courses on it. Apex has been running courses on this for forever. So you need to understand what you need to make a forecast on how much you expect to sell of a of a product. Uh, and you need to get people are afraid of making coming up with a number. But I mean if I'm talking to a business owner, what would I know? I can't tell him. <laughs> He's in touch with the market. His best guess will be better than anything anyone else can probably come up with. So, and that's what a forecast is. It's your best guess on, on what is actually going to sell. And, and the problem with inventory management is that people try and tie themselves up in knots trying to be perfect for the forecast. Um, or beating themselves up too much when they when they get it wrong, but all you can ever do is make the best decision based on the available information. If you can reach out to your customers and ask them, or get pre commitments, that's why the pre order thing is just is gold, right? If you can get people to pre order your stock, fantastic. Um, now, and if you've got a history of getting pre orders, you might know that you always sell fifty percent more than that from people who who turn up or. Or three times that, whatever it is, you'll you'll get some sort of history of the future, if you like. If I do certain behaviours, then certain sort of things tend to happen in my particular business with these sorts of products, right? So you want to get as much information, uh, forecasting information as you can from your customers and from the market, because the market you want the market to tell you what uh, um, what they're going to use. And then you put that in and you stick it in time buckets. I'm going to sell, you know, 100 next month, then 200 the following month, and then 500 the following month because my marketing campaign will have ramped up. And I know from history that my marketing campaigns ramp up something like that. You know, it starts off small and then it builds up. Or it might be the opposite. I'm going to sell 500 the first month, then 100 in the next month, and then nothing. So no point having an inventory lasting beyond that. But you, so you know something. So you use what you know from your marketing campaigns or from information you can gather from your customers, indications of intent, pre-orders, feedback, social media, anything, anything that you've got in, in your arsenal to get information from the market. And then you stick time, you stick that forecast into time buckets into the future. And then you use the standard methods for calculating um, how much you need to buy and when you need to buy it based on the, the lead time and the batch size and all of those other things, which is like bread and butter. And, it, and it's arithmetic. It's, there's nothing fancy here. It is literally uh, arithmetic. It's, it's, so basically, here's the formula for inventory. I'll give you the formula for inventory. It's what you've got plus what's coming less your demand, less what you need, right? And it's as, it's as simple as that. And then you add time to that. And then, boom, inventory. No more forty percent stock non-moving, right? That, that doesn't mean you won't get it wrong. So you still end up with stock where you go, you know, uh, uh, I had my campaign, I sold fifty percent of the stuff that I expected to sell. That's a bit disappointing. 
and I've still got 50%. Now I can just like go, oh, well, and leave it in my warehouse to clog up the warehouse with inventory that is just in the way (laughs) and is not earning me money, or I can do something with it. Leaving it for a year won't make the situation better. You're you're describing the the perennial story. So Dylan and I have backgrounds in selling on Amazon, right? Like that's that's where we we cut our teeth and a lot of a lot of e-commerce uh, goods based operations, right? And what you're describing is the the perennial story of a lot of Amazon sellers. Um, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the United States. More, I would say more than half of what's sold on Amazon is not sold by Amazon itself, right? And a lot of a lot of Amazon sellers, you know, they have a, a variety of, of ways they source their goods. But one of the one of the common ones, or at least the ones most talked about, because it's it's the most interesting sounding, and often comes along with uh, get rich quick uh, schemes and, and things like that, is uh, retail arbitrage, right? So the what ends up happening in a lot of cases is. Um, folks will buy up, you know, everything they can find in hopes that one day it'll sell for maybe a lot of money, but they don't really know for sure, right? Like they, they, you know, they assume that, you know, because there isn't a lot out there or they, you know, there's some other arbitrary reason they'll, they'll scoop it all up and well, there's a, you know, there's a $50, you know, margin on a $5 item, something, something just totally wild, right? So that convinces them just to take everything under the sun. And then it just sits for like a year and a half or whatever. And then they they try to justify that with themselves and fine. Okay. If if the math, yeah, if the math works, whatever. I mean, you can, you can argue it all day, but at the same time, you know, that's, that's capital tied up for other stuff, right? Like whenever, whenever I had goods that sat, God, I don't need like a month, maybe like I was like, all right, clearance time. Let's move on to the next thing. Right. Like I wasn't, I wasn't in the business of stashing stuff in an Amazon warehouse in hopes that it'll sell one day, right? Like I was in the business of selling things. And what that told me is if it didn't move, it's just not something I need to carry anymore. And I need to move on with it. I need to cut my losses. And I feel like it's, it's almost terrifying for a lot of people to cut their losses because, you know, they're admitting either that they were wrong or they just don't like the idea of losing money on that, you know, proposition, you know, whatever it could be. It, it, it took me a while to get through, through my head that not every, not everything is going to be a winner. And it's just, well, that's and, just what it is. And to that point, it's, it's an unwillingness and, you know, speaking to myself too, it's an unwillingness to accept the true math of it, which is opportunity cost, right? It's very sexy, so to speak, to look at, a, a potential 600% ROI on 20 units, but really it's been a year and it's still not moving. Instead, you need to view your inventory like a compound equation, right? The the quicker I, so if I have a lower percentage ROI, like let's say, you know, 15% ROI, instead of me moving that inventory once a month, I move it, or once a year, I move it once a month, I still have a higher compounded ROI. <laughs> so it's still more yeah, profitable, absolutely. but it's yeah. hard for people. And I think, you know, what initially got me very interested on the logistics side is because what you can understand and accept the fact that it's, you know, it's really just a compound equation, right? You're, what you realize is the incentive is to reduce the time from when you receive inventory to when you ship it out. That needs to be as compressed as possible. Well, the only way to do that, fun fact, is to have amazing operations <laughs> and to be very streamlined, right? And so you get to this point where, you know, 
the way you manage your inventory is different where a lot of people go, Oh, well, I'm gonna get three months worth of inventory because I only have to place one PO per three months. Really, you might need to do two POs per month because your churn rate of that same amount of capital is much higher. And so you get to this point where um, you, you want, again, you want those operations to be very compressed from, from the moment it comes into your business to it exits your business with a profitable, you know, net profit attached to it. That's as tight as it can be. Ideally, in an ideal world, it would be immediate, which is why dropshipping kind of exists. Let's be honest, but, but that's not a scalable model. Not what we're talking about. But, but, but yeah, I mean, so I'm curious because um, I have on our notes here, you know, sell more with less stock. That's got me super intrigued. Um, and and the, that comes down to inventory planning. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so let me just touch on a, on a couple of things that just came up during that that last little conversation. One loss aversion, right? So I've I've just been started re-listening to um, Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, which if you if you have not listened to it, it's heavy going, but it is it's a wake up call, right? You, you need to understand your cognitive biases. And people fall in love with their inventory uh, and they are afraid of losing money. I- exactly what you're saying, Jonathan. Um, people don't want to lose money on, on the stock. So uh, they just kind of like freeze <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and don't know what to do with it. So th- the fact that you learn that lesson that you just got to turn this thing over is like that is absolutely – you know, you're a young guy still, so learning that lesson early instead of <laughs> later <laughs> – that is that is huge, right? That that alone makes you a successful businessman. <laughs> it it got to the it got to the point where you know, and, and some people would never. I, I see a lot of folks who they get like halfway there. They're like, okay, fine, I'll break even on it. It's like, no, I don't think you really understand what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you've ever been to any retail store, um, I don't I don't know any Australian equivalents, so I'm just going to say Target or yeah. Walmart, right? Um, the clearance section, right? Like. If, if there's any, like, if you're thinking in your mind that they're still making a substantial profit off of those items, if anything at all, like, I have a really sad story to tell you, and it involves you being wrong. Uh, because those items are at the point where the business has said, okay, we've, we're, we're done with this, we've made enough, or we're never going to make enough, we're, we're piecing out, right? We're moving on, and, and that's it, right? And that's, there's a reason every retailer does that everywhere right like it's it's not just because they all got together and decided you know what sounds really fun a clearance sign right like that's that no it they're they're doing it because they need that they want that money back right they they want to put that into something else that is profitable and it's a business decision so it's not just enough to say okay fine i'll break even it's it's also acceptable to say well i'm gonna have to take a loss in some of these and then you do the math at the end and hope it all worked out and you you know maybe you know you sold 90% of them at a profit and 10% at a loss like it's still going to it's still going to balance out in the end right like you can't you can't think about those last 10 like you did the first 90 if they're not going to move yeah yeah it's money and it's space so in retail obviously space is like really important you know you want to have use your retail floor space to contain things that are going to make you money not things that are actively losing you money <laughs> Uh, which is the clearance rack, right? That is actively sucking money out of your business, so uh, and and damaging your brand and educating your customers to wait for the next clearance sale, right? Exactly, and it's it's it it, bl- it blows my mind that this keeps coming up um, because you know if you sell on Amazon and you use their warehouses, right? They charge you 
per per cubic foot, right? And especially during the holiday season, it's kind of pricey. So like you would you would you would think that there wouldn't be any other thought besides how do I move this out of here as quickly as possible so I don't have to pay the storage fee. But that literally never comes up. And that's that's not just an Amazon thing, right? Like if you contract with any any 3PL warehouse anywhere or you run your own, that's going to be part of the equation is this this stuff, my things are taking up X number of of space that is costing me Y per month. Right. Even like the dollars, right? I mean, think about this. So I, I've had a lot of people reach out and be like, oh, well, I've got this amazing deal with a brand. I want to bring them on, but I don't have the cash. I'm like, okay, well, why don't you have the cash? Like, it's always important to question that assumption. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I just, everything's tied up. And you start going through the inventory and you realize 20% of their actual working capital is tied up in bad inventory. I'm like, if you just liquidated things that have sat there for three months, <laughs> you could immediately redeploy it right now into something incredibly profitable. And in a year's time, you've made up those losses plus some. Yeah, and, and stop those storage charges. Yeah. Now, I'm coming back to the sell sell more with less stock, right? I'm coming back to I'm, – I'm getting there. But I'm, but I'm just going to use an analogy uh, around – that's very relevant to the conversation that we're having now. So the, I view or, – or the way I – this is how I view it, and I think business owners need to view their warehouse as like an apartment building and their stock as tenants in that building. So obviously it costs you money to have that building. Uh, and if you're out in a 3PL or at Amazon, then you're essentially subleasing, right? That's what you're doing. Um, so uh, who would put up with a tenant in their building that is not paying them rent? But you wouldn't, That's right? Good, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because it's costing sure. <laughs> you money. They're occupying your space and we go, let's get those tenants who are not paying me rent, let's get them out so that we can put someone in there who's actually going to pay me for occupying my space and my time. So once you kind of adopt that mindset, you'll actually realise that your uh, there is a cost of storage, right? And I don't care whether you own the building or or, or not. There is a there is a a cost to you storing it there. That's why Amazon charge per, cu- per cubic foot, um, and uh, and you expect to get a return on the the money that you've invested in in that space. So that that's that. Now sell sell more with less stock. What, so what's the formula for selling more with less stock? And that is exactly what you were saying, Dylan, which is to turn the stock over, right? The more frequently you purchase, the less stock you need to satisfy the demand. And also, so two, there are two benefits to, uh, to turning stock over more frequently, to purchasing more frequently. Um, so one is uh, less stock. And so if you purchase twice as frequently, you can probably halve your stock. It's a, it's a very simple formula. It might not. It depends upon how much safety net has. You might not quite have it, uh, but thirty to forty percent is kind of easy, right? And a lot of people could probably half their uh, double their purchase frequency, uh, half their time between purchases, and and cut you know thirty forty percent out of their inventory. But if you're going to do that and you're leaning up, then you do need to actually make sure that you know what you're doing, because. If you lean up your inventory and you don't have good systems and processes in place, you're just going to run out, right? So people use lots of inventory to cover laziness, right? And to cover, I don't have to think about it. If I know if I've got two pallets of, 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 you know, coffee bags in with the, uh, uh, with the roaster, then it just won't be an issue for me, right? I'll, I'll, I'll be covered. Um, 
but the coffee roast is going no i've got i've got like that space you can have six boxes here that's it i don't want any pallets of stuff right so there's always that compromise around space selling more frequently lowers your stock level but you need to be smarter about the way you do it if you're going to bring your stock level down because otherwise any kind of variability you could um, or problems in your supply chain are going to cause stockouts. So you do need to be careful when you do that. The other thing that purchasing more frequently, increasing that that um, turnover, is it reduces the risk of excess inventory. If you've bought three months' worth of inventory and you sell one month's worth, you've got two months' worth of inventory that is now non-performing. If you've only bought one month's worth of inventory and you've sold one month's worth of inventory, then, okay, you might stock out right at the end of it, but you've satisfied all the demand. So, uh, and then you and then you go, well, okay, I can see that it was tailing off, therefore maybe I'll do it, I will reorder, but I'll reorder a much smaller quantity. So purchasing, because you, you, your supply, your demand's going to, you know, go up and down. So you want your supply to track the demand as closely as it possibly can. Now, it's obviously it's going to lag, um, but the more it lags, so the more you have to actually get out in front and predict that demand, and we know the future is uncertain, then um, the more you introduce risk, right? Because we know that the further you go out with a forecast, the less accurate it will be. Uh, that. That's just because you don't know what the, it's like. The weather, right? They predict the weather for the next few days. They're pretty, pretty good now. Um, two weeks from now, no, no idea, right? It'll still be winter, but it might be sunny. It might and and warm, or it might be cloudy. Australian bushfires, right? <laughs> Everyone remembers this December at the peak of the bushfires. They're going, oh, there's no rain till April. <laughs> And, you know, this is going to go on for like literally two weeks after they said there's no rain forecast, it started raining. <laughs> and we've had and we've had a wet year, relatively speaking now. Uh, so um, and we had like a year of drought. And that's why the fires were so bad, because the land was just dried out. It's just, you know, it was all set to burn. So forecasting the future is terribly, terribly uncertain. You have to do it. Right. And there's no excuse for not doing it as well as you possibly can. But just recognise that that there's uncertainty and with uncertainty comes risk. And so um, frequent purchasing, uh, and it is possible to purchase too frequently, so you don't want to go the other way because um, you, you will add you will add cost in terms of churn, right? Um, but finding that right kind of balance at the right frequency allows you to track demand much more closely, de-risk your chance of uh, stockouts in, into the future. So, um, yeah. So that's how you sell more with less stock is you purchase more frequently, right? But you need you need to be smart about the way you do that. If you just cut your inventory down, you know, by with gut feel as your forecasting mechanism, you're going to get it wrong. Help me understand. And this is more of just kind of like a not really a rhetorical question, but this is this is just a very, uh, a very broadly worded question on purpose, because I don't think there's one exactly right answer. I would imagine there's there's a happy medium somewhere between having literally just enough and no more, right? So you have zero underperforming or non-performing inventory and having too much, right? Like there's, you know, you want to have that buffer, I assume, for the, you know, the better days or, you know, uh, maybe somebody on social media decided you were the greatest thing ever and now, you know traffic is flooding in and you're selling a lot more than you had predicted right now you have a buffer to account for that but like where do you where do you draw that line like or like is there is there a more 
I was about to say, is there a more better? That's not words. Is there a more appropriate way to kind of pick that spot and then just kind of go with it? Like, do you, how do you dig into it and like nitpick it and, and find like the, the exact number, right? Like is, is 986 the perfect number of a thing to have? Or like, does it is between 900 and a thousand? Do you just, does that make sense? Do you, do you know what I'm getting yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. Like there are ways of looking at, you can look at imagery like at a particular product level, right? So you, you dive down to a particular product or you can look at your imagery kind of as a as a as a whole or or you've heard of the abc you know class analysis where you sort of look at the the high value fast moving items and the a class items so you give them your most attention because you don't want to run out of stock of those because they're the ones that make you money so uh, but they are also the most predictable ones so the beauty of products that sell frequently is that they are much more predictable than products that sell infrequently the tail is much harder to manage than the uh, than the high value products. I think the short answer to your question, Jonathan, is that there isn't a perfect, there isn't a number. And whether it's 950 or 960 or 1000 doesn't actually really matter. What matters is, uh, is how you are performing in terms of your forecasting and your matching of supply to demand over time. Yes, for those at the individual item level and also at the at the class level and also on the overall value of your imagery, you've got to look at the whole thing. So that's why imagery management is such a difficult and complex task and why people create amazingly complex and sophisticated spreadsheets to try and put all this information together and why people build imagery planning systems. And, you know, all of that stuff is uh, is out there and should be used, right? I really think that every business should be doing some sort of you know forecasting and, and planning and using some sort of a, a system um, uh, to help them do that. The movement of any product will have a certain variability in its demand, right? So that that so you know this month you sold fifty, you know the previous month you sold seventy five, the month before that you sold sixty, the month before that you sold twenty five, and you, so you got twenty five to seventy five, you know, and you got well. I, pff, I don't know, but it's selling, right? And on average, let's say it's forty five units a month say that it sells but we've got variability of of you know um 30 or 40 units plus or minus 30 40 units so you go well i need to account for that and that's what your safety stock is doing your safety stock is 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 countering for your variability in demand so you go i don't want to have less than 40 units you know in in stock to to cover my month and then i build my supply on top of that so in other words i want to if I'm if I've run out, I've got forty units left. Right, that's what safety stock is. Safety stock says is on average my demand is forty five units, but sometimes it's eighty. <laughs> so uh, I, I you know I expect to sell forty five, but this month I sold eighty. So because I've got you know maybe forty units of safety stock, I've still got five units left at the end of the month. Close call, but I didn't run out. Well, and the good thing too, just to highlight real quick, is if 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 you're not forecasting so far into the future, that becomes way easier, right? Be, so like, as an example, the, the typical lead time for a wholesale on Amazon is like two weeks. So like every two weeks you're placing restock orders, like super tight, like as tight as you yeah, can probably get um, yeah. without going to drop shipping. And in order to do that, so in that, in that case, it gets as close to near instant forecasting as, as you can, right? Because the further you out, the, you know, the, the more blurrier it becomes, but, but because you have that 40, which now technically becomes your new zero, so to speak, 
you're not looking so far out. So you're not having to account for this wide amount of, of um, variability. It's actually a little bit tighter, right? So where, yeah, your three-month variability might be 50 units, you know, plus or minus, your one month might be 20 units plus or minus. That's that's at least way easier to account for in terms of variability than, than the 50, right? Um, uh, it, well, I mean, the, the variability is, is inherent in the way a particular product sells, right? And the variability in any given thing. So that the amount of safety stock and the amount of stuff you're going to buy is comes back to purchase frequency, right? So if you are buying every two weeks, and two weeks is like, depending upon the situation, you're probably not going to purchase much more frequently than than uh, every two weeks because otherwise you start to get into churn. E- even weekly would be okay, but I've certainly seen businesses where they're purchasing every day, and that is oh, wow. madness, right? Yeah. <laughs> And that's because they simply just they don't have a system in place to, to manage it. So they're continually running out of stock and just placing emergency purchase orders all the time. And it's just... That's a lot yeah. to manage. So <laughs> that's an out-of-control process. Um, but that's different than like a retail store that gets bread deliveries daily because bread lasts like a day, right? Like there's, yeah. and there's a difference between panic buying and having a standing PO where the bread company shows up every day with X amount of loaves no matter what until told otherwise, basically. No, no, hundred percent. So all of those, you know, the nature of the product and the the these inherent sort of lead times in certain supply chains, and you know, bread and milk are, are one of those things. Bread basically expires daily. The moment it's made, it's starting to go bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that is that is correct. That is correct. Uh, and even products that don't expire still expire. As to my earlier point around the, yeah. you know, if it hasn't sold in a year, then no one's buying it. To to throw one more small wrench into this whole equation right for some suppliers uh quantity can affect price right like if you so if you buy a hundred of a thing maybe if you bought 500 of a thing then now it's 15 percent cheaper right you have in 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 a way you kind of have to balance that i would think with uh your reordering frequency because if you know, if it's something like it's, you know, it's a supply, right? Something that's inherently just shelf stable because it's just a, a component of a thing. And, you know, your your budget, your balance sheet can absorb five times purchase. But you also know it will eventually deplete in a roughly reliable fashion. In my mind, anyway, it's just from the surface. That doesn't seem like an entirely terrible move. But if you don't have the data to back up purchasing 5x what you normally would that 15 percent, you know you you Super might end risky. up you might end up spending that in additional warehouse costs because it took a lot longer to to move than that 15 percent was worth the jonathan you've just you've just described another cognitive trap which is everybody <laughs> loves a bargain yes thank you for hitting that on the head that's wonderful right. and, and we see uh, that far too far too often in our space where people go yeah, but if I get three months worth of inventory, it's cheaper. I'm like, yeah, but you're not accounting for the fact that you could have spent that same amount of capital twice per month. So technically six times in total compounded. You still would have made more money without the bargain. Yeah, there's this carrying cost in, in capital cost. Not that interest rates are so low that capital cost is not what it once was. But there is still a cost of capital, and there's an, and probably the opportunity cost of capital is actually bigger than the uh, the um, the interest cost of yeah, uh, capital 100%. now. Uh, so there's a there's a, a an opportunity cost of capital. There's an opportunity cost of space, um, uh, and the you should never make 
Jonathan, to, to your point, you should never make a, a purchasing decision based on uh, on getting a bargain. That is always the wrong decision. Right? <laughs> Thank you for always. adding clarity to that. <laughs> that so is a just, statement just, I've wanted for like three years. <laughs> yeah, let's just let's just clear that up right now. That is always the wrong decision. If you if you are making a decision solely based on the basis of uh, if I do it now, I get a better deal. Right? It's, it's like the car salesman. You you sign up right now and you get it for this price. You don't know enough unless you are unless you've already been to fifty different car yards and you know that that is the best price you're absolutely going to get. If that's the first one you've walked, you don't know, right? Now, to to your your qualifiers, Jonathan, around the um, what if I know I'm going to sell it again? That's a that's got to be a purchasing decision, not a I'm getting a bargain decision. So if you've got nuts and bolts. For example, right, trivial items. So let's say I buy a box of a thousand bolts, for argument's sake, and I and I sell them individually. Whether I buy a hundred or five hundred or a thousand, that can often make like you know a hundred is ten dollars, five hundred is fifteen dollars, and a thousand is seventeen fifty. Right? You get you get pricing scales that kind of work like that, and they're nuts and bolts. They actually don't take up very much space. So that uh, but I sell them for a dollar each, right? So, um, uh, uh, and everyone buys them, and I sell, you know, fifty a month. And if I buy a thousand, yeah, okay, yes, that's many months of stock. But but I may as well because it just doesn't. It's like the cost of actually holding it and doing all of that is actually trivial, and it's just like we know this stuff. Just people just buy it, right? And they will always need it because it's structured into the nature of the market or the industry or whatever. Fine. Right, they're your C's. So when I talked about ABCs, the C's are the things you don't want to pay a lot of attention to. So these are the the items that are trivial in cost um, that you know you need to have. And sometimes slow moving items are actually critical to the business. Right, you can have things that are, are from an inventory management perspective are annoying, but they are actually critical. People expect you to have the, that bolt, right? Because I'm coming in to buy the the five hundred dollar thing. And I need five $1 bolts to go with it, right? So in order to sell the $500 thing, the customer needs to know I can get my $5 worth of bolts from you as well. So that you certainly get scenarios like, so you've got to have them, right? And they will always sell. And so that is fine. Go buy the pack of a 1000 No problem there. But you're doing that because you've understood uh, the, the demand, you've understood the cost, right? Uh, and if... For some reason, the bolt size suddenly changed because there was a new model, and I throw away the pack of a thousand bolts that I've just bought because they're useless now. I've thrown away seventeen dollars fifty, and and it doesn't matter to me, right? Um, so, you know, there are things that are trivially small that you can do, but where people fall into the trap is, uh, you know, the palm. Uh, you, you guys remember the palm devices, the little palm pilot things years ago. Uh, so they were big before smartphones, right? So I, I certainly had one cut. This was a, a while ago. I had one, one client who got a, a special deal on a bunch of Palm, uh, devices that they got very cheaply. Uh, that with the time, by the time I saw them, they'd been in the warehouse for like four or five years or something like that <laughs> because they bought them just as smartphones were just making them completely and utterly obsolete and they got a bargain. Right, because these were expensive devices. It was the top of the line Palm device that that, that you know, like the last one that they made before they died, um, and 
So it just seems very, very attractive. So all of those things, they are traps, absolutely traps. Trivial things, the C-class items that you you treat like that, sure, fine, absolutely. But uh, don't, if your customer wants one and you don't normally sell it, buy one. Don't buy a pack of 10, even though it's cheaper. But people do all the time and they end up with warehouses full of, of inventory that is no one's buying. It, it sounds like to me that you don't do much Black Friday shopping. Then is what I'm hearing. <laughs> that, that's not a that's not a business strategy, right? Uh, wholesalers and manufacturers don't have Black Friday sales for the most part. No, right. So in the B two B world, which is where you're buying, you're buying in the B two B world. So the B two B world is you want strong relationships, regular purchasing, you know, modes. Uh, you want to negotiate your best price. You want to you know, minimize your supplies. All of those sort of strategies are all what you should be doing in, in the B2B world. Retail, yes, go opportunistic. Fine, get a bargain, right? Um, but the same rule kind of still applies personally as it does in, in, in business in that we've all bought bargains of clothes or things that we then didn't wear or wore once and go, yeah, those shoes don't fit or I don't like it, what it looks like. And you bought, you, you bought 50 bucks worth of junk that is junk. So what what we've learned here over the last hour, and admittedly, we didn't get to nearly all of the bullets that I think uh, Dylan and I wanted to. Like, there's there's so much here that we could talk about that definitely doesn't fit in an, into an hour. So I, I will say before anything else, we will have to have you back on the show because we didn't even start talking about shipping, <laughs> and that's literally <laughs> about freight or warehousing or anything. <laughs> that's that's literally a thing I obsess over uh, in in a past episode. I spent probably 15 straight minutes talking about how much I obsess over shipping and packaging and things like that, like for efficiency's sake. So we'll definitely have to to cover that uh, in a future episode. But I think what we've learned today here is that logistics is hard. Yeah. There's no one right answer to any of this, but there's definitely a wrong answer of not thinking about it at all. Like pretending, pretending it's just not a thing that needs to be on your mind from the start like especially that's something that I've picked up here recently that's really starting to hit home uh could put you in a in a world of hurt really quickly uh, and things can things can spiral out of control before you know it and and many people in a world of hurt that they don't that, that they're simply not even aware of because um uncovering where you're at with your imagery is actually um it's quite opaque right you you've got to dive into the data and most people are simply not equipped to actually do that um and yeah the sort of people who run e-commerce businesses they're marketing guys they're product guys you know they're they're customer focused people they're they're not their head's not in spreadsheets right it it just kind of just (laughs) isn't in their personality or skill set dylan and i love spreadsheets i think this that's our that's our life so you're 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 in good company here so where andrew where if people want to dig into this more beyond this episode where where should we send them? Like what? Tell everyone where they can find you, your resources. How how do they learn more right now? Yeah. So uh, my website um, is logistictshelp.com. and uh, and I have there's there's actually there's plenty of information on the website. I have a YouTube channel uh, just called Logistics Help, uh, and I have a, a growing number of videos there. I don't have a lot there yet, but I'm trying to develop content. The I mean the the problem is I'm a uh, I'm a consultant right and I'm, I spend most of my time doing project delivery and I would love to do kind of more of this content 
development and stuff. Um, but I've so I've got stuff coming. I've got some stuff coming on um, on process design. So I've got I've done <laughs> I've done one little teaser video called uh, "Your Processes Suck," which I've just <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's going in the show notes oh, look, for sure. Here, your processes suck because they are slow, uncoordinated, complex, and therefore error-prone, and they keel over under load, right? So I just built a whole acronym around sucky processes. Wait, it, holy, wait, shit. Your pro- slow. Wow. I definitely <laughs> did not. So that literally is your processes Your processes suck. suck. Oh. They're slow, uncoordinated, complex, and keel over under load. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. S period. Yes. So that's period. on my YouTube channel. There so so I, I recommend everyone go watch that. Uh, it's only three minutes long. So and, and we I, I, and I describe the antidote to uh, sucky processes. Uh, but I'm going to do a whole. I've got a. I've got this. Look, I've guide to good process design, uh, which I just I wrote a few years ago, and I've just updated it recently. So that's going to be. Uh, published as a some sort of an ebook or something, and my twelve principles of high performance warehousing. That's an infographic I got there. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that that we. If you want to talk more, I'm I'm happy to to come back and 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 dive into more stuff. Happy to talk about shipping. Oh please, Dylan just doesn't get it like yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm. You know, I'm just waiting on a uh, computer which I ordered a week ago and uh, got sent on a courier, and it just it's I can I go into and I look at the tracking and it's just sitting in their depot, and I'm like, man, just. What, what, how hard is that? How do you? How do these shippers not have any alerts that tell them that products are just have been sitting in their depots too long? They have the best systems in the world, and yet they don't know when they lose things, and they don't know that things are stuck. They don't seem to have any kind of alerts as to what's going wrong within their business. Andrew, it's been great having you on the show. I think Dylan's headphones cut out, so he is mute now. So I will, I will take us out. Any, any last pro tips before we say goodbye? Process. If I was going to say that, if I was going to kind of point to one thing that people don't do well enough, is that their processes just evolve, right? And they never think about the underlying processes of the business. So that's a whole other conversation, which I'd love to have with you uh, at, at some point. But think about your processes and optimize your processes. That would be the, the that's if, what I'd leave people with. If Dylan has his way. That will happen because he, he, he is a process. He is a human process. I don't, I, I, I don't get it. So thanks for coming on the show, Andrew. <laughs> I'll say thank you on Dylan's behalf since he can't speak. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Dylan.